Abrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, we ask that as we open up your word today that you will speak boldly into our hearts and our lives, that it will be your word heard, your heart received, that nothing in me will be involved except that which you have ordained specifically for this purpose. Lord, I ask that you breathe new life into us, into our congregation as we dig through your word, and that you will speak boldly into our hearts and our lives, that we will leave this place transformed and ready to impact the kingdom or the world around us for your kingdom today. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray, and everyone says, Amen. All right, real quick, uh, just as a bit of a caveat at the beginning of the message, I want to encourage you, uh, if you have a bulletin, there's a, a, a blank page in there for notes. Today's one of those days you might want to take advantage of that. If you don't uh, want to handwrite because there's a chance you might not be able to read it later, if you're anything like me, it's more than a chance, um, you just won't be able to read it. Um, but if you don't want to write, pull out your phones, your tablet, whatever, and, and, and get ready for some notes because uh, th this is just one of those one of those messages. So if I tell you to take notes, that means there's going to be something going. So <laughs> with that said, we're going to go ahead and dive right in. Uh, so our Torah Parsha this week is Parsha Shoftim, uh, which is Deuteronomy 16, 18 through 21, verse 9. And it begins with a discussion of establishing judges or Shoftim over the nation of Israel to help guide the nation in righteousness. It moves on in Deuteronomy 17 to discuss the inevitability, uh, the inevitable reality that Israel will one day become comfortable and complacent and request an earthly king to be like all the nations around us, which on so many levels is the exact opposite of everything Adonai called our people Israel to be. We see Moses, uh, Moses' discord in the, on the cities of refuge in chapter 19. We also see in chapter 20 a reminder to be confident and courageous in battle because it is Adonai going before us in battle. Reminds me of worship this morning. Uh, but I think one of the most powerful realities found in Parsha Shoftim is the Messianic prophecy found in Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 21. The promise that the Lord will raise up a prophet like Moses, which is a prophecy of Yeshua HaMashiach, as we see referenced throughout the Brachad If you haven't already, I strongly encourage you to go home today and to take time to read through the Torah Parsha for this week. And just a friendly reminder, each and every week in the bulletin we hand out as you come in the building, you will find the Torah Parsha for the upcoming week broken down into easy-to-follow readings uh, that you can follow along with each and every day over the course of the whole week so you can spend time daily in the Parsha throughout the course of the week. Uh, for the past several weeks, as we have said before, we have been focusing intentionally on the Haftorah Parshot uh, in the Shabbat message, and we will continue to do so as we continue to move through the seven messages of consolation or the seven messages of Isaiah, as they are also often called, moving towards Rosh Hashanah. Officially, this week's Haftorah reading is Isaiah 51, 12 through 52.12. However, as we look through the seven messages of Isaiah, it is easy to see that there is a pretty vital passage of Isaiah that is, quote-unquote, conveniently spliced out of the seven messages. Can you guess what this passage is? It's Isaiah 52.12 through 53.12, uh, the prophetic description of the suffering servant. This messianic prophecy historically would have been either a part of last week's Parsha or uh, this week's. And in Messianic Judaism, we tend to attach it right along with this week's as it flows contextually right along with what we read from Isaiah 51.12 to 52.12. 
If, you, uh, if one takes the time to sit down and read the suffering servant prophecy without the rose-colored glasses of modern Judea Jewish interpretation, it becomes obvious, uh, or at least beyond so, that this is a prophetic allusion to Yeshua HaMashiach offering his life as atonement. In fact, through, uh, through, throughout the Middle Ages, uh, the traditional Jewish interpretation of Israel, through the Middle Ages, rather, the traditional Jewish interpretation of Israel, uh, of, of Isaiah 52.12 through 53.12, was very specifically of the Messiah suffering on behalf of of the sins of the nation of Israel. However, in the Middle Ages, and it was likely Rashi who began to shift the narrative, the modern tr traditional Jewish interpretation of this passage has shifted the focus from a Messianic individual who will suffer on behalf of the, the people of Israel to B'nai Israel, to this, the nation of Israel itself being that suffering servant. And you may find yourself asking, why the shift? If from the days of Isaiah's prophecy through the middle, up to the Middle Ages, the interpretation had always been that Messiah would suffer for our sins, then why did we suddenly shift our perspective? Well, sadly, the reason is the same as one of the primary reasons our Jewish people as a whole have yet to recognize Yeshua as Messiah. Jewish persecution at the hands of those who were supposed to be the bearer of the good news, the body of Messiah. More specifically, historical Jewish suffering, suffering at the hands of Christianity. And we'll dive more into this in, in a little bit. To this end, the Complete Jewish Bible says this. Yet in the uh, Complete Jewish Study Bible, sorry. Yet in the Middle Ages, the great Rabbi Rashi and others changed the interpretation of this passage. As a result of their new interpretation, the nation of Israel became the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, not the Messiah. Many Christians had been persecuting Jews, quote-unquote, in the name of Jesus. Because of the rabbi's concern that Jews might end up following the one who seemed to be an enemy based on what Yeshua's so-called followers were doing to his people, this interpretation of Isaiah 53 changed. Even though not all rabbis followed this new interpretation, it has prevailed in uh, Judaism for centuries. End quote. In fact, the traditional, uh, in traditional Judaism, this is often what is considered the forbidden chapter of Isaiah. Many rabbis would encourage Jews not to read Isaiah 53 unless the rabbi is there to tell them what it, quote-unquote, really means, lest our Jewish people finally recognize who the suffering servant truly is, Messiah Yeshua. Now, with this in mind, we are going to look at, uh, at one of the most important prophetic concepts found in this week's Haftorah Parsha, and in the context we can actually simplify the overarching Haftorah Parsha into a simple yet powerful statement. And that statement is this. Messiah became the bearer of our sins so that we could become the bearer of his good news. I want to repeat this statement again because I want you to keep it fresh in your mind. As a matter of fact, go ahead and grab that bulletin that I mentioned a few moments ago and write this down. I want you to keep it in your mind as we move through the sermon today. Messiah became the bearer of our sins so that we could become the bearer of his good news. Messiah became the bearer of our sins so that we could become the bearer of his good news. Now let's dig into the word. As we've discussed already during this period of time on the Hebrew calendar, known as the seven weeks of consolation, which fall between Tishbab and Rosh Hashanah, the entire Jewish world is focused on the consequences of our sins, which was the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. Not once, but twice. The hand of the Babylonians and again, the hand of the Romans. Now, 
The cause of this destruction was sin, the sin of Israel, the rejection of the primary concept of the Torah, which was the command to be set apart, righteous, and holy, to not become like those who we dispossessed in the land of Canaan. However, if you spend any time reading through the Tanakh or through the, the Old Testament, you'll notice that B'nai Israel very rapidly turned to idolatry, very rapidly walked contrary to our covenant relationship with Adonai, and very rapidly turned our backs on the Torah. Now, there's also a greater concept to behold in our rejection of the Word of God and our embracing of sin, the sin of the world around us. That concept is the symbolism of the destruction of the temple. What made the Beit HaMikdash or the temple so special? Was it the altar? Was it the menorah? Was it the porpoise skin? Was it the, the, the table of showbread? No, not in the least. As a matter of fact, it wasn't even the altar, or I'm sorry, the, 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 the uh, Aron Habrit, the, the Ark of the Covenant that made it special, but rather what resided on the Aron Habrit, the Ark of the Covenant. What made the temple so special, what made the temple so important, it was the Shekhinah, the divine glory or the presence of Adonai that dwelled in the temple, that dwelled in the midst of the people of Israel, that made the temple special, made it set apart, made it something extra. So the destruction of the temple actually held a far greater symbolic gesture than just a reaction to sin. It symbolically meant that Israel had rejected, that we, that, that we had turned our backs on the presence of God. And as such, God removed his literal presence from our midst. We chose to walk away from him, so he chose to remove his presence from us. Now, obviously, God did not leave or forsake Israel if he had, if he could then we'd have, an ab we'd have absolutely no reason to believe in anything God says, as he says over and over and over again throughout the word of God, that he will never leave nor forsake the people Israel. But what he did do was to remove his presence from the sinful ways we chose to live in. By the beauty, but the beauty of the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 is that Adonai promised Israel he would provide the means for not only the removal of our sins, but the means for the restoration of Israel in his presence again. This is the heart cry of Isaiah 52, 7 through 9, or 7 through 10, rather. If you have your scriptures, go ahead and open up there. Isaiah 52, verse 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces shalom, who brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they will lift up their voices. Together, they are shouting for joy, for they will see eye to eye when Adonai returns to Zion. Break forth in joy. Sing together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For Adonai has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Adonai has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. All the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Now, real quick, one clear sign that Messiah has not yet returned is in verse 8, where it says, For they will see eye to eye when Adonai returns to Zion. And if you know anything about the Jewish people, we always argue. We clearly don't see eye to eye yet, so he has not come back. When every Jewish person in the world suddenly agrees, time to keep your eyes open. Bible doesn't say that. Don't, don't take that as... Okay. <laughs> As I mentioned often, Isaiah makes it clear that the call and purpose of Israel was not to be a nation that keeps to itself or ignores the rest of the world. 
She was not called to hoard the Torah. She was not called to hoard covenant relationship without an eye. She was not called to hoard the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No, she was called to be a light unto the nations. Isaiah 42, 5 through 7 says, Thus says Adonai, uh, God, Adonai, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth uh, and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and ruach to those who walk in it. I, Adonai, called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, by opening blind eyes, bringing prisoners out of the dungeon, and those sitting in darkness out of the prison house. Genesis twenty two sixteen through 18 says, By myself I swear, it is a declaration of Adonai, because you have done this thing, and you did not withhold your son, your only son. I will richly bless you and bountifully multiply your seed like the stars of the heaven, like the sand of the seashore, and your seed will possess the gate of his enemy. In your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you obeyed my voice. Israel was never called to be greedy or stingy with our relationship with God or the Shekhinah, His divine presence. In fact, we were called to draw the world around us to the God of all creation, to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to bring restoration to God's creation. However, we did not heed the Torah. We did not heed the countless reminders in the Torah and ultimately throughout the Tanakh not to chase after the gods of the nations around us, not to trade the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is a personal interacting God who speaks to us, who moves in our life, who is active in our midst for gods that are made by human hands, for gods that are not gods at all. Not to live like the world around us, not to give into their sinful ways, but yet Israel over and over and over again continued to walk away from God as we see throughout the judges and throughout the kings of Israel and Judah, even the leadership of Israel continued to lead the nation astray. For that matter, sadly, often even the Kohanim, the priesthood, would lead Israel astray. Keep in mind the book of Isaiah is a prophetic message that entails what is going to happen to Israel and Judah because of our sins, a continual call to teshuvah and promises of restoration. It's not one or the other. It is a prophecy of all three that there will be destruction because of our sin, that God is calling us to teshuvah, and that there are promises of restoration. Part of the restoration will be the reestablishment of the nation of Israel after the Babylonian captivity. But, what isn't the but, but that isn't the fullness of the promise. With Isaiah 52 and 53, we see the prophetic foundation of the Besorah HaGeulah, the good news of redemption through Messiah Yeshua, our suffering servant who offered his life in an atonement for our sins and the sins of the whole world. Isaiah 52 verse 7 again says, How beautiful on the mountain are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces shalom, who brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. What is this good news? It's the reality that Yeshua has in fact died for our sins, that he has become the bearer of our sins so that we could be set free. He died a most gruesome death on the cross so that you and I could experience freedom, so that our chains of bondage could be broken free, so that we could experience restoration. Why is this message of restoration so powerful in this season, this time of, of the month of Elul, this period between Tisha B'Av and Rosh Hashanah? Why is restoration such a huge focus of the seven message of consolation? Why is restoration such a focal point leading up to the High Holy Days? 
It's because our sins, our brokenness, have caused us to be expelled from the presence of God, from His Shekhinah, His divine glory. Our sins have created our separation between us and Him. Our sins have broken our relationship with Adonai, yet, despite our many failures, despite our many sins, despite our rejection of Him and our turning our backs on Him to chase after the ways of the world, He has still provided His one and only Son to suffer on our behalf, that we may be restored to Him, that we may be restored in Him. That the separation from his Shekhinah that was experienced with the destruction of the temples may be restored in the indwelling of his Shekhinah, of his divine glory through his Ruach HaKodesh, his Holy Spirit in our hearts and our lives, making us a holy temple. But here's the kicker. As Isaiah 52, 7 alludes to, we are not to keep this good news for ourselves. Israel hoarded the Torah rather than being a light and blessing to the nations. Worse so, not only did, they, did we hoard it, but we also forsook it and rejected it. But in the same sense, a, Torah, a, a major reason the suffering servant passage of Isaiah 53 is considered a forbidden chapter in Judaism is because the primary Gentile, uh, primarily Gentile body of Messiah turned around and hoarded the good news from Israel, and often in horrendous ways. But if you read Isaiah's words in, uh, in chapter 52, 7 through 10, as we read earlier, he focuses heavily on the good news going to Israel and to the ends of the earth. As a matter of fact, verse 8, the voice of your watchmen, they will lift up their voices together. They are shouting for joy, for they will see eye to eye when Adonai returns to Zion. Break forth in joy. Sing together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For Adonai has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Adonai has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. All the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Isn't this the key to the command of Yeshua in the Great Commission? Uh, Matthew 28, beginning with verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, immersing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Ruach HaKodesh, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And Paul clarifies this by reminding the body of Messiah in Rome that the good news is a message for both Jew and Gentile, not a message for Jew and or Gentile. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the good news, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who trusts, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And both Yeshua and Paul make it very clear that this promise of Isaiah 52, 7 through 10, that Adonai will in fact return to his people Israel is true. As Paul says, all Israel will be saved. And Yeshua says he will not return until all Israel proclaims Baruch B'Shem Adonai. And I want to pause here for just a second and give you a little context on why that specific phrase is so important for Israel to proclaim. Baruch B'Shem Adonai. Yeshua says you will not see me again until all Israel proclaims Baruch B'Shem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You got to understand the opening words of a Jewish wedding ceremony is the phrase Baruch B'Shem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The opening phrase of a Jewish wedding ceremony as the rabbi stands at the chuppah and the bride and the groom are standing there, he welcomes the bridegroom into the, the chuppah, into the wedding ceremony by saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What Yeshua is saying is, you will not see me again until all Israel proclaims, I am the bridegroom of Israel. Till all Israel welcomes me into the chuppah, 
into the wedding ceremony. And what does Yeshua say will happen? We will enter into the wedding feast of the Lamb. It's important for us to understand that this phrase wasn't just happenstance. Yeshua isn't simply throwing out some really neat, quaint Hebrew phrase and hoping that people figure out that it doesn't mean what it says, but it's very specific and intentional, the words that he has chosen, as he reminds us over and over again that one of the major themes we see throughout Scripture is that we are called to be the bride of the Lord, the bride of Messiah. You and I have been redeemed and restored in the blood atonement of Messiah Yeshua, our suffering servant, so that we can share the good news with all, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We have not been redeemed so that we can sit on our hands and keep it to ourselves. We have not been redeemed so that we can be lazy in our faith and not be disciples who make disciples. We have not been redeemed so that we can make sure we're covered for eternity, but not really give a care at all about anyone else. We have been redeemed so that we can shout to the, from the rooftops, from the mountaintops, bringing good news of shalom, of happiness, of salvation, good news that the God of Israel reigns. Romans 10, 11 through 15 says, For the scripture says, Whoever trusts in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, richly generous to all who call on him. For everyone who calls upon the name of Adonai shall be saved. How then shall they call on the one in whom they have not trusted? And how shall they trust in the one they have not heard of? And how shall they hear without someone proclaiming? And how shall they proclaim unless they are sent. As it is written in Isaiah 52, verse 7, how beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim good news of good things. It is time the body of Messiah remembers our call to proclaim the good news faithfully, unashamedly, and unreservedly. It is time that we recognize Messiah became the bearer of our sins so that we could become the bearer of his good news. Moving on to Isaiah 53, beginning with verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our pains, yet we esteemed him as stricken, struck by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. The chastisement for our shalom, for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, each of us turned to his own way. So Adonai was laid on him, uh, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Uh, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep before the shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. As I mentioned earlier, Isaiah 53 is viewed as the forbidden chapter of Isaiah is typically avoided, especially during the seven weeks of consolation as we see it's been spliced out conveniently from the, the Haftarot uh, moving through these seven weeks. It is a chapter that most rabbis would prefer no one read without them being there personally when it is read in order to explain to the reader what the passage quote-unquote really means out of fear that a Jewish person may read the chapter on their own and see it for what it truly says. Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12 speak uncannily verbatim to the sacrifice of Messiah Yeshua. To quote from uh, an article from One for Israel uh, about the forbidden chapter, the 17th century Jewish historian Raphael Levi admitted that long ago the rabbis used to read Isaiah 53 in synagogues. 
But after that, after the chapter caused uh, arguments and great confusion, the rabbis decided that the simplest thing would be to just take the prophecy out of the Haftorah readings in synagogues. That's why today when we read Isaiah 52, we stop in the middle of the chapter. And the week after, we jump straight to Isaiah 54. End quote. Now, let's take a moment to continue to look at what early Jewish views of Isaiah 53 actually were. The book of Zohar, which is the kind of the foundations of uh, uh, Jewish mysticism and, uh, and such, says uh, that the, it recognizes the principle of substitution, that the suffering of the Messiah would come to take the suffering that others deserved for their sins. On the verse, surely he has borne our griefs, the book of the Zohar says, there is in the Garden of Eden a place named the Palace of the Sons of Sick Sickness. This palace the Messiah enters, and he summons every pain and every chastisement of Israel. All of these come and rest upon him. And were it not that he had thus lightened them off of Israel and taken them upon himself, there had been no man able to bear Israel's chastisement for the transgression of the law. Midrash Konin, uh, in discussing Isaiah 53, puts the following words of, in the mouth of, of Elijah the prophet. Thus says the Messiah, endure the suffering and the sentence your master who makes you suffer because of the sin of Israel. Uh, thus it is written, he was wounded because of our transgressions. He was crushed because of our iniquities until the time uh, until the time of the end comes. Tractate Sanhedrin in the Babylonian Talmud 98b writes uh, about the, saint, the name of Messiah. His name is the leper scholar. As it is written, surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did, we did esteem him a leper smitten of God and afflicted. In Midrash Tanhuma, it says, Rabbi Nachman says, it speaks of no one but the Messiah, the son of David, of whom it is said, here a man called the plant, and Jonathan translated it to mean the Messiah, and it is rightly said, man of sorrows acquainted with no grief. Notice that past Jewish thought did not shy away from Isaiah 53 and its connection to the suffering servant being the coming Messiah who would willingly suffer on behalf of our sins. So what could have possibly changed? Why is it that Judaism suddenly, hundreds of years after the first century, made an about turn on interpretation of Isaiah 53? Sadly, the body of Messiah. The history of the spread of Christianity is a bloody mess, to word it as our friends across the pond would have put it. And the Jewish people have suffered greatly at the hands of Christianity in its spread. As a matter of fact, the overwhelming majority of the major atrocities that our Jewish people have endured over the past 2,000 years have sadly come at the hands of Christianity and under the authority of a bloody cross, which by saying so, I'm alluding to the red cross often seen on the banners of old as the crusaders and such would go into battle. Historically, Christians have viewed punishing, torturing, and slaughtering Jewish communities as perfectly acceptable because the Jews killed Christ. During the Crusades, which lasted for at least 300 years, while the Christian Crusaders were trying to take Jerusalem back from the hands of the Muslims, they practiced their art of warfare on Jewish villages along the way. The atrocities of the Holocaust were performed under the guise of Christianity, replete with Jews being killed while the soldiers sang hymns, making their act an act of worship. 
The pogroms in Eastern Europe were performed by Christians. It was Christian governments that forcibly ejected Jews from England, Spain, and many other European countries at the threat of death. And so many more examples can be given. As a matter of fact, in uh, Africa today, Jewish communities in Africa, Ethiopians, Zimbabwe, and Zambia and such, still face blood libels from the Christian community and Jewish people are still slaughtered because there is fear that on Passover they're going to come in and steal the little Christian children and sacrifice them to their God uh, and libels like this that still spread. Oddly enough, as we read the seven messages of consolation after Tisha B'Av, a great number of these atrocities that I just mentioned were actually initiated historically on Tisha B'Av. So why did Jewish opinion of Isaiah 53 suddenly change from the accepted and historical view that it was speaking of the coming Messiah as a suffering servant suffering on behalf of our sins to Judaism's modern opinion that it is speaking of the Jewish people as the suffering servant. Simply put, because those who were given the task to, as Isaiah 52 puts it, bring good news, to announce shalom, to bring uh, good news of happiness, to announce salvation, to say to Zion, your God reigns, the body of Messiah, historically Christianity, did the exact opposite to the Jewish people. Instead of proclaiming the good news that the God of Israel reigns, the historical church has taught that in order to be saved, the Jews must give up the Old Testament God and become a Christian under the New Testament God. The Jewish people have been held solely accountable for the death of Yeshua for two millennia, ignoring the fact that if we want to be historically accurate, it was actually the Romans who killed Yeshua because under Roman authority, Israel didn't have the legal right to perform capital punishment. But even more so, ignoring the fact that Yeshua died for the sins of Jew and Gentile alike, which means it was the sins of all humanity, Jew and Gentile alike, that put him on that cross. So it was Jew and Gentile alike who killed Yeshua. And it was Jew and Gentile alike that he rose, uh, for Jew and Gentile alike, that he arose from the grave, ascended into heaven, and became our final atonement and our intercessor before the throne of God. Why would Jewish people today, in light of everything that has transpired over the past 2,000 years, want to even remotely consider the historical Christian presentation of the suffering servant? So Judaism's interpretation of Isaiah 53 shifted dramatically to attempt to protect Jewish people from converting to Christianity and forsaking their Jewish heritage and faith because both traditional Judaism and the church uh, have the view that the two faiths are op in opposition. But uh, both traditional Judaism and Christianity believe that in order for a Jew to believe in Jesus, that Jewish person leaves Judaism and converts to an entirely different religion. More so, Judaism believes that it is an act of treason against the Jewish people. Because the God of Israel would never condone such acts as, having, uh, as have been suffered by the Jewish people at the hands of Christianity. This is why it is considered to be treason. Uh, or, or at least equal to treason within the Jewish thought. So within traditional Jewish mindset, there is a huge separation attempted to be made between Isaiah 53 and Yeshua so as not to risk losing Jewish souls to what is believed to be an apostasy, the body of Messiah. Now, as I said before, Israel was supposed to be a blessing and a light to the nations, and we failed to follow through on that in faithfulness. We hoarded the light. 
In the same sense, what the anti-Semitism that was prevalent in the Gentile church is, uh, it's a similar situation. In Romans 11, 11 through 15, Paul says, I say them, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. By, but by their fault, steps salvation has come to the Gentiles to provoke Israel to jealousy. Now, if their transgression leads to riches for the world and their lost riches for the Gentiles, then how much more their fullness? But if I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, insofar as I am an emissary to the Gentiles, I spotlight my ministry. If somehow I might provoke the je to jealousy my own flesh and blood and save some of them. For if their rejection leads to the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Sadly, instead of making Jewish people jealous for the Jewish Messiah, we played a vicious part in driving Jews farther and farther away from Yeshua. So while I can completely sympathize with the rationale behind the traditional Jewish avoidance uh, to the ancient Messianic interpretation of Isaiah 53, truth be told, there is no more Jewish message than the substitutionary suffering servant prophecy of Yeshua HaMashiach. And albeit modern Jewish history is riddled with the wounds, pain, and anguish caused by nearly two millennia of abuse by misguided believers, this should not retract from the powerful message of Isaiah 53. And the despicable acts of hum humans cannot change the word of God. Yeshua HaMashiach is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Curiously enough, in many traditional synagogues the world over in just a few weeks, on Yom Kippur, there will be the recitation of an additional segment unique to Yom Kippur found in the Kedusha of the Amidah, called the Az Milifnei Verishit. That is an almost direct quote of Isaiah 53, and it speaks directly to the interpretation of Yeshua, or particularly Messiah, as the suffering servant. As a matter of fact, First Fruit Zion have a fantastic article about this particular prayer and the curiosity of its involvement uh, in the Yom Kippur service despite the accepted view of most of Judaism today that Isaiah 53 is not speaking of the Messiah. If you are listening to this message online and would like to read this article for yourselves, email us at info at shalomeasternshore.com and I'll be happy to send you that link. The prayer says, in part, our righteous Messiah has turned away from us. We have acted foolishly, and there is no one to justify us. Our iniquities and the yoke of our transgressions he bears, and he is pierced for our transgressions. He carries our sins on his shoulders to find forgiveness for our iniquities. By his wounds we are healed, forever a new creation, the time of his creation. And here's the reality. You hear me say it often, as Messianic Judaism we can't separate ourselves from the Jewish world, nor can we separate ourselves from Christianity or the histories of either. We exist in the odd middle ground between the two. We exist as part of both worlds. While we do not condone or agree with everything on either side, we are a part of both sides. Actually, we represent the biblical and prophetic reality that there isn't actually two sides. There is, as Paul describes, a commonwealth of Israel, and both natural and unnatural branches are grafted into the root and the fatness of the olive tree. But as such, we find ourselves uniquely positioned to be able to proclaim the good news of salvation to the to our Jewish people because we are a Jew and Gentile, one in Messiah, living out the fullness of the word of God in Jewish context and uniquely positioned to bring the, God, the good news of restoration to our Christian brothers and sisters to the message that the God of Zion reigns. 
It is time the body of Messiah remembers our call to proclaim the good news faithfully, unashamedly, and unreservedly. Messiah became the bearer of our sins so that we could become the bearer of his good news. And we do have good news to share. We rejected God and chose to sin. We chose to walk away from sin. But he loves his creation so much that he called out the nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the smallest nation of all the nations, to be a light to the nations. He gave us his Torah. He brought us into covenant relationship with him. And despite our continual failures, despite our rejection of that covenant relationship, he still sent his, only, his one and only son to suffer on our behalf to become the bearer of our sins so that we could be restored to him. Messiah was indeed disfigured more than any man. He came a little lower than the angels, setting aside his majesty. He was not specifically someone who looked particularly special in some sort of a standoutish way. Messiah was despised and rejected by men. He, uh, his own people plotted continually against him. He did, in fact, bear our griefs and carry our pains. He became afflicted and pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, he took the stripes of beating upon his back so that we can be healed and delivered, so that we can experience freedom and shalom. He died with criminals and was buried in a tomb that was not his own. Isaiah 53 verse 11 says, As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will make many righteous and he will bear their iniquities. And at the end of 53, verse 12, for he bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. Messiah literally became the bearer of our sins so that we could become the bearer of his good news. As I prepare to close, I'd like to ask our worship team to make their way back to the stage. Now I want to take time to make the point that Nothing I uh, have said today is intended to be perceived as bashing on our brothers and sisters and Messiah and the church. History is what it is. There's nothing we can do to change the past, but we can uh, allow God to change our hearts for the future. Likewise, nothing said has been intended to be perceived as bashing traditional Judaism or our rabbis and sages, but rather pointing out where our eyes have been blind to the truth of Yeshua Mashiach as a suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Yeshua did not come to create a new religion. He did not send out his Talmudim, his disciples, to make disciples of all nations at the expense of the Jewish people. Our Jewish people are called throughout the Tanakh, Goy HaGoyim, a nation of the nations. And the Jewish world needs to know the truth of our promised Jewish Messiah. We are not living in times in which we can afford to be lazy in our faith or in our discipleship. We are not living in times in which we can be lazy in making disciples. We are not living, or we are living in at least what I believe is the very beginning of the last days. And Messiah's return is, in fact, imminent. Yeshua said very clearly, he will not return until all Israel, become, uh, all Israel welcomes him in as our bridegroom by proclaiming Baruch Haba V'Shem Adonai. For I do, Romans eleven twenty five. sorry, verse, through, 20, through verse 27, Paul says, For I do not want you, brothers and sisters, to be ignorant of this mystery, 
lest you will be, yet lest you be wise in your own eyes, that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer shall come out of Zion. He shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them. When I take away their sins. In these last days, it is time we recognize the weight of the gift God has given us through salvation in Yeshua. It is time we take up the call as Jewish believers to be a light unto the nations and as Gentile believers to drive Jews to jealousy for their Messiah. The Great Commission calls to make disciples of all nations. And Isaiah 52, verse 7, it gives us the message to begin with, a message of hope, a message of freedom, a message of restoration, a message of renewal and healing, a message of salvation, a message that is for Jew and Gentile alike. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces shalom, who brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Messiah became the bearer of our sins so that we could become the bearer of his good news. Avrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, we thank you that you have sent your one, your one and only Son to die upon that stake, upon that cross, that we may be renewed and restored in you. Father, I thank you that you are gracious and loving and that in spite of our history, in spite of the history of uh, rejection of Messiah from our Jewish brothers and sisters and history of rejection of our Jewish brothers and sisters from the body of Messiah, that you are ever faithful. And that, Father, your promise of restoration, renewal, and redemption remains true, remains real, it remains accurate, it remains available. And Father, I pray that you will open up opportunities for us to share with you and Gentile alike about the work that you have done in our lives and bringing us not only salvation, but healing and restoration. Father, I thank you for the work of salvation provided by Messiah Yeshua. I thank you, Lord, that you have in fact given us a good news to proclaim and that you have placed that good news in our hearts and our lives to speak to each and every person you bring in to our path. Father, we worship you, we thank you, we love you, and we adore you. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray. Amen.